In episode 82, I talk with financial planner for coaches, Eric Bartell. Eric Bartell owns a financial planning firm headquartered in Arlington, Texas, called Financial Coaching. Eric has 15 years of experience serving as a financial advisor to high school coaches, college, and pro football coaches across the country. Prior to starting his career in financial planning, Eric worked for an NFL sports agent in the scouting department of the Houston Texans and as a salary cap assistant for the New York Jets. Eric earned his master's degree in sports business and finance from New York University, and he earned a double major bachelor's degree in finance and risk management from the University of Louisiana, where he also played football for the Raging Cajuns. Upon receiving his bachelor's degree in May 2004, Eric was recognized as an academic All-American and named the university's most outstanding graduate. In 2007, Eric and his wife Leslie were married on a TV show called Platinum Weddings. They now live in Euless, Texas and have their hands full raising three children, Annabelle Grace, 11, Sean Ryan, 9, and John Wyatt, 6. Eric's daughter, Annabelle Grace, is a bone cancer survivor and she has been in remission for the past 18 months. Her story can be found on Facebook and Twitter and at the end of this episode. Her hashtag is AGTuff. Before we jump into today's episode, just a few housekeeping things. Remember to follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at HWCN Podcast. If you're in the Dallas area and are looking for some fantastic custom cookies that look almost too good to eat, check out Texas Treaties. Podcast listeners can use a special 10% off promotion code PODCAST. Check the show show notes for details. Are you trying to step up your menswear game? Then Etiquette Dawn is the best choice. Etiquette Dawn is a truly custom apparel company that will have you looking like a sharp, dressed man. Check out EtiquetteDawnCustomApparel.com for more information. When you need a coffee that works as hard as you do, or is as strong as your squat, bench, or deadlift is, then I suggest checking out Viking Coffee Company. Podcast listeners, use the code COFFEEWITHNOONAN for a 10% discount on single purchases. Check out vikingcoffeeco.com for more details and to order the official coffee of the Hanging with Coach Noonan podcast. Drink coffee, work hard. If you're looking for a quick and effective way to keep your weight room and or locker room sanitized, check out Xanago Sprayer. Bacteria can grow anywhere. The Freedom Sprayer goes with you so you can keep your athletes protected wherever you go. Check out Xanago.com for more information. Now, let's get into today's episode with Eric Bartell. In this episode, we are joined by Mr. Eric Bartell. Eric is a uh, financial investor for coaches. Uh, He does a great job uh, helping people improve their quality of life because money at the end of the day, uh, although it's the root of all evil, it's the bane of our existence and it's necessary. Uh, so Eric, thanks for taking the time to, to talk with us and, uh, thank you for what you do to educate coaches and, and appreciate you taking the time to, to help me, uh, not only just educate myself, but hopefully educate somebody else that listens to this episode. Thank you, Coach Noonan. It's, a, it's an honor to be on your podcast. 
Uh, it's good to meet you at Texas High School Coaching School this summer. And uh, just excited to be able to share some insight behind money and uh, with coaches like you and others that uh, hope they're wise enough to tune into your podcast. I appreciate the kind words. You know, one of the things that when you, when you pull up your Twitter, it's, it's pretty fascinating. Um, you know, everybody kind of puts different things in their, in their bio line. And, uh, you know, for you, it kind of, every time I, I I pull it up and I look at it, um, there's that whole, you know, walk on to D one thing, um, you know, and it's just one of those, one of those deals where everybody's got a story, right. And, um, how that story impacts you and, and carries you is, is, is important, I think, in terms of your growth and development. So if you wouldn't mind, just kind of ex- expand, elaborate, however long, however deep you want to go on that whole deal. Yeah. So, uh, I'm a coach's kid. My dad coached D one college football, my whole life throughout my playing career. So, you know, he, he played at Texas tech. He, uh, was a DB there and he started as a graduate assistant under the defensive coordinator there in 77 named Bill Parcells. And, uh, the other GA was a guy named Romeo Cornell and my dad, he wanted to go into coaching. So, uh, he, yeah, he bounced around like every other college coach. He went Texas tech, West Texas state, UTEP back to West Texas state, UTA when they had a football team, Louisiana tech, Houston, and then USL, which is now University of Louisiana in Lafayette. And uh, so I've been a coach's kid my whole life. And growing up as the ball boy, everywhere he coached, or I was on the, uh, the court back in those days, the coaches on the sidelines wore headsets and they had a long cord connected behind the benches. And my job was to keep all the players off the cord and basically trail my dad up and down the sidelines. So... I always had a dream of playing football for my dad because as a college coach, he didn't get to see me play much high school football because on Friday nights, he was either on the road on a recruiting uh, trip or he was on the road for an away game during the football season. So I played high school football on the south side of Houston at Clear Brook High School, graduated in 99, and I think my dad saw me play four games total. And those were all in the playoffs in the old Astrodome because the college season was already over. So I always had this desire to play for my dad. And uh, when I was a senior, uh, he took on a job as the DB coach at USL, now Louisiana, the Raging Cajuns. And uh, I decided to walk on because I I knew I could play D1 even though I was only 5'7", 165. You know, I was a short, fast receiver, but those height and weights, that's not going to get you a D1 scholarship unless I ran like 4-3, which I didn't. I was a 4-5 guy. So I, uh, I decided not to go play the, uh, 1AA, which is now FCS, and I didn't want to walk on at Houston because my dad had just left there. So I walked on at USL, which is now Louisiana. So <clears throat> I walked on, and thankfully um, – I had great academics. I always took care of my business in the classroom. 
So I got most, about 90% of my school covered by academic scholarships. So that afforded me to go in <clears throat> with very, very, very little student loan debt uh, and earn an athletic scholarship. Because as you probably know, after two years, if you get put on full athletic scholarship in college, it doesn't count against the numbers for the next recruiting class. So I, when I first got to uh, UL, they were, uh, I was 12th on the depth chart because we ran a 21 personnel. Two back, one tight end, an X and a Z. So we had literally 24 receivers and I was on number 12th depth chart. I was the 12th Z. And, uh, <clears throat> but I decided to go there because I knew I could play and uh, I knew uh, I would be the smartest receiver in the room and I knew how to get open and I knew how to catch the ball and, uh, you know, first downs and touchdowns. So kind of bet on myself a little bit. Um, funny story, my first uh, practice with the varsity. So back in those days, the, the freshmen and all the JUCO guys, the new guys on campus, they showed up two days prior, two days prior than the veterans. And, uh, you know, you got your, your name on your helmet and uh, you're a nobody. You got to make plays to get your reputation. So I was doing good there for two days and getting a lot of reps. And then the varsity guys came in. And then that's when I went to 12th on the depth chart. And I'll never forget, I was in, we were in one-on-one -on -one drills. It was the first time doing one-on-ones with the entire team. And I was the last one to go. And I get on the line, I get my route, I had a slant. My receivers coach at the time was Tyke Tolbert. He's now the receivers coach for the New York Giants. And Tyke said, Bartell, I'm gonna give you a slant. So I go out to line up, there's no DB. There's nobody guarding me. And I yell at my dad, the DB coach, I said, dad, I need a, I need a corner. And one of our seniors started and Colonel Schumach said, wasted rep. And I said, you get out here and cover me. So this is a walk-on freshman yelling at a senior to cover him. And everybody's like, oh, you know, head coach, Coach Ball was like, hold that horn. You know, we're not going to the next period. Let this play out. And uh, sure enough, three-step slant. He was playing off man. Three-step slant, got him. <clears throat> everybody's going, ah. I threw the ball back to the quarterback and said, no, nah, we're not done. Let's go again. So I went back to the huddle. I said, this time, give me a curl route. Said okay, so I go out there and everybody, you know, now we got the O line and D line watching too. All everybody's watching us go, and uh, sure enough, he's playing off man again. And I get up on his toes, snap it off, come back to the ball, catch it. That's two. I said we are not done. Let's go one more round. And I uh, go back to the huddle, and I tell the quarterback, I said the most embarrassing thing for any DB is to get beat deep by a little white guy. So I'm going to run a 17 yard comeback do not miss me. And I went out there and I, I told the DB, I said, press me, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, press me, let's go right here. I'm pointing at the line of scrimmage. So sure enough, he rolls up on me and I know he's gonna, he won't give me an inside release. So on the snap, get them hands off me. I'm sprinting as fast as I can, like it's a takeoff route. I'm about to beat him deep. And when I hit the 15 yard mark, I literally throw on the brakes and he flies right by me, like Top Gun, Maverick. He runs right by me. I snap it off. I catch the ball. I act like I signed it with my finger and I toss it up in the air. And I said, don't you ever disrespect me again. I'm not a wasted rep. 
and everybody's going nuts. You know, the energy at the practice was real high. That night, he and uh, the DB and three other seniors threw me in the dumpster behind the conference center in Lafayette. But the next day, when I went to practice, guess where I was on the depth chart? Number one. Sixth. I moved up half. But I went from 12 to six in one practice because I believed I belonged out there and I was not afraid of the stage against a senior or a starter. And that's where Coach Tolbert sees like, I'm going to reward guys that make plays. Like, I'm going to reward guys that aren't afraid to bet on themselves. And since that day, you know, I just worked my way up and uh, I led it all four years as a gunner on special teams. The other gunner was a guy named Charles Tillman, played in the NFL for, 15, you know, 14 years, called the peanut punch. Yeah, he did that to us in practice every day. So I played gunner, played on kickoff cover. I was L1. I was the safety back there by the kicker all four years. Uh, I was on pump block. We almost beat Arkansas because we almost blocked two punts and ran them back for touchdowns, me and Peanut coming off the right edge. And uh, I was a holder. And I finally got to play receiver my sophomore year and uh, scored in my, the first game that I got to play in. Then my junior year, scored on homecoming, and I was dating the homecoming queen. That was cool. And then my senior year, I started every game. And we finally got into a uh, 10 personnel, which was great. <laughs> so... <laughs> We got a new uh, OC and we got into 10 personnel versus 21 personnel, but uh, it was great. We uh, did well. Uh, like I said, got put on scholarship after my second year, graduated at the top of my class with an, a degree in finance and uh, risk management, which is basically insurance. Cause I thought I wanted to be a sports agent and I worked, I saw Jerry McGuire, show me the money, Rod Tidwell, all that. And uh, I said, I can do this. I can be a sports agent. So my academic advisor in college said, you need to get a degree in finance through the college of business, you know, and later on, you might want to go to law school to work with contracts. So that's how I got into the college of business. Always been intrigued by money and by math, uh, return on investment, uh, and always had an entrepreneurial spirit. Like never wanted to work from somebody. Always wanted to have my own business in some capacity if I didn't go to the NFL and be a GM. So when I finished up in college, uh, they named me the most outstanding graduate for the entire university, which had never happened for a student athlete. And that was pretty cool. Um, and then I got to do an internship with the Houston Texans uh, the summer of 2004. And uh, they put me with the uh, assistant GM, the guy's name was Bobby Greer. And, uh, they sent me with the wide receiver. So every day I got to warm up Andre Johnson. You to throw him. That was pretty cool. I think he said three words to me in two months. He just doesn't talk. <laughs> but he's an unbelievable athlete and just a great human being. And uh, so I, when I worked for the Texans, I realized I did not want to be a scout because they would stick me in there. I had to watch film on the upcoming seniors. And I realized if you're a scout, you better love to watch film. And I did not. So I was like, well, scratch that off my list. And I didn't want to go into coaching because I saw how hard it was on my family. My parents got divorced when I was five. My dad uh, had moved six times. UTA dropped football and DFW, and he got hired in Ruston, Louisiana, at Louisiana Tech. Well, my mom was climbing the ladder at a company called Digital, which is now Hewlett Packard, HP. 
And uh, there's no corporate American jobs in Ruston, Louisiana. And she wanted my dad to stay in DFW and just be a high school coach. And she'll be the breadwinner. And my dad was like, no, you married a college coach. I'm gone. So it didn't work out. And I've seen how, how the college coaching business, it's an awesome profession, but it's a brutal business. And uh, I didn't want to put my wife through that. So I was like, I'm not going to go into coaching. And now I'm not going to go into scouting. So my last chance in the NFL was to be a GM or a salary cap guy. So when I went to NYU in New York City, that's where I went to get my master's in sports business and finance. My first year up there, I worked for a sports agent. And I realized real quick, I didn't want to be an agent. Because now I got to put my livelihood on a 22-year-old that if he's good enough to get drafted, it's a good payday on the first contract, but the big contract's the second contract. So they got to stay in the league four years, but the average life expectancy in the NFL is three years. The owners know that. That's why they make the rookies wait four or five years to get to the next contract. And an agent only makes 3%, and you got all these other veteran agents trying to steal your clients every day. So I didn't have the money to compete in that marketplace. Uh, I, I don't come from a broke family, but I'm not from any wealth. You know, I'm, we're, we were very middle class growing up. College coaches back in the 80s and 90s don't make what they make today. Um, so I uh, didn't want to be an agent. And then uh, my, the, my first summer, it was summer of 05 in New York City. Uh, the defensive, the head coach for the New York Jets was a guy named Herma Edwards. Remember that? Hello, you play to win the game. <laughs> yep. Yep, he was the head coach, and uh, Chad Pennington was his quarterback. And uh, his defensive coordinator was Donnie Henderson. Well, Donnie coached my dad at U of H. My dad gave Donnie Henderson a job, and uh, Donnie said, if I can ever help you or your family, let me know. So I, I called Donnie and said, can you help me get an internship with Mike Tannenbaum, the GM? Because I would love to do an internship with the salary cap. And he said, I got you. Sure enough, I interviewed with uh, Don Aponte, who now runs the cap for the Miami Dolphins, and Tannenbaum, and they gave me a summer internship with the New York Jets. I had the coolest business card, but I made no money. And uh, if you don't make, if you make under $20,000 in New York City, you're broke. And, but it was really cool to see the insides of the NFL uh, system and the salary cap. I could see every contract that was ever written. And now I'm on the owner side, so I'm trying to devalue the player. I'm trying to look for all the dirt on the player. A bad knee, a crazy mom, a crazy ex-girlfriend. Like, you're trying to bring the value down on the player and maximize uh, revenue and cash flow to the owner. Um, problem with that business is it takes a long time to move up. It's pretty much you only move up with either death or retirement from the person above you. And... Uh, it was an internship. It ended. And I realized I was like, I'm just probably not supposed to work in the NFL. Um, and whenever uh, I finished up grad school, I came back home and Bill Parcells was the head coach of the Cowboys. And my dad said, what are you going to do now? You got your master's from NYU. You're 24 years old and you're living back at home. And I said, well, let me try with the Cowboys. And if that work out there, I'll, I'll, I'll go get a J-O-B. So I met with Bill Parcells, and he basically told my dad and I that he was not going to work another year in Dallas. He was done. And uh, 
I didn't know who the next head coach would be, and it didn't look like a good fit. So I, I kind of gave up the NFL dream right there. And I'm driving home with my dad from Valley Ranch, and he goes, well, what are you going to do now, son? I said, I do not know. I don't know. I'm 24 years old. I have no clue what I'm going to do with my life. I have this gorgeous girl that I've been dating, but I can't even afford to buy her a ring. And I don't know what the next phase is for me. And he goes, well, since you're living at my house, Mr. NYU, I need you to uh, fix my retirement plan. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, I've been at 10 universities and I got all these statements and manila folders and I don't know what the heck I'm doing. So can you just review it and tell me if I'm in good shape? I was like, sure. So we got to his house. He handed me all of the statements. I reviewed them that night. And basically, 95% of his money was making 3% fixed. No matter what the market did, it made 3%. Um, and I said, Dad, why are you in this? He goes, I don't know. Everywhere I went uh, during enrollment, I did my benefits. Some guy signed me up for retirement. I knew I needed to do more than just Social Security. I signed up. I never saw the guy again. Uh, rinse, repeat, do it again. Everywhere I went. I was just too busy raising boys, trying to stay married, trying to recruit, trying to win games. I didn't have time. And I said, well, had you just been in a balanced uh, mutual fund, making 8%, you'd have three times the money you have right now. And he goes, you got to be bleeping kidding me. <laughs> I said, I am not, because I can tell you what happened the last 25 years of your working career. And here's what you should have had, but now you don't which means you're a higher risk of being broke and moving in with me. And he goes, well, that's just dandy. He goes, why don't you fix this? And I said, how many coaches are like you? He goes, what do you mean? I said, how many coaches don't have a clue what they're doing with their money? He goes, I'd say all of us. And that's when the light bulb went off. And I, and my, I was like, I need you to write your 10 best friends' names on this piece of paper and their cell phone numbers. This is back in 2006. I said, I'm going to call your 10 best friends in college coaching and see if they have any clue what they're doing. Nine of the 10 had no clue. And these are guys from TCU, Oklahoma, LSU, Miami, USC. These are not like, you know, small universities with no HR department. And I was like, that's it. I'm going to start a company called Financial Coaching out of DFW. And I'm, I'm just going to serve coaches. And I'll get, if I get referred to other people, I'll help them too. And to this day, I still don't even have a website. Like it's all word of mouth, and I just serve coaches. I'm I'm here to help coaches. The first coach I ever walked into their office to see was uh, Eddie Peach. He was the head coach at uh, Arlington Lamar High School back then. I walked in in a suit and tie, and Coach Peach said, "Bartell, I'm going to tell you this because I care about you." you never want to walk into a coach's office with a suit and tie on. <laughs> and I said, why? He said, they instantly get defensive and think you're trying to rob them. So to this day, I wear cowboy boots, blue jeans, and a, like a polo shirt. I don't, I don't wear suits and ties. I don't drive fancy cars. I drive an F-150. But my, what I've learned is if you take care of coaches, they will take care of you. So I've been in business now for 15 years and uh, yeah, serve over 150 coaches across the nation, NFL, college and high school. And got a chance to see a lot of uh, 
coaches improve their situation. And that's pretty much the basis of my business is you'll retire, retire sooner than later with me. Uh, hopefully your family will be stronger because of it, because I truly believe a coach that's not worried about their money is a better coach, a better spouse, a better parent, and just more enjoyable to be around. I'm with you on that hundred percent. You know, like I kind of said in the, in the intro part, you know, the, the money is always there. It's always a, a matter of importance. Um, and the way in which we gain and gather information now compared to what you, when you started 15 years ago, and then obviously your entire dad's, the entire career of your dad's coaching career, um, you know, he had no access hardly to quality information regarding investment and anything like that, you know, and then 15 years ago, uh, you know, we're, we're flip phones, we're dial up internet. I mean, you know, if you had the right connections, yeah, you knew the stuff, but now it's, I mean, there's, there's websites telling you the moves that Congress, that congressional people are making, um, you know, anybody that's everybody is, uh, has, has somebody. And then, you know, unfortunately people are, are falling victim to these hacking accounts or hacked accounts and, you know, send me a uh, hundred bucks on cash app and I'll, you know, you'll double your money overnight and get rich quick. Uh, it, it, it baffles me that there are still dumb idiots out there that fall for, uh, for these schemes, whether they're, you know, Ponzi pyramid, whatever you want to call them. Oh, it'll ha it's happened forever. It'll continue to happen. And on your opening uh, intro, you said uh, money is the root of all evil, which is actually false. The Bible says that the love of money is the root of all evil. And that's often misquoted, but it's, that's the thing. What I've learned in my business, and this also comes from Ronnie Flowers at Athletic Supply. I'll give him a shout out. Ronnie Flowers, the first time I met him was at coaching school in San Antonio back in 2007. It's right before the recession hit. It was me, my dad, and Mike Schultz on the Riverwalk. We hung out all day, and we ran up a a, a tab there right by Mad Dog's Pub on the Riverwalk. We ran up a tab of about $120. Ronnie walks up, says hi to my dad because my dad got his helmets and shoulder pads from Ronnie. And he goes, I hope you guys have a great night. I just want to come by and tell you thank you for your business because he's from Abilene. And he dropped $200 bills on the table and said, y'all have a good night. And I said, Whoa, whoa, whoa. I was like, what's your name? He goes, Ronnie Flowers. I said, I'll never buy any helmets or shoulder pads, but I just want to tell you thank you for picking up my tab. And he goes, let me tell you some, a little business advice. He said, if you take care of coaches, they will take care of you. And I've never forgot that. And my, the whole basis of our business is you got to love people enough to tell them the truth. Everybody's telling people what they want to hear, but if you're doing something stupid and you're my client, I promise you, I will tell you you're doing something stupid. And my coaches will tell you that. And it's funny because usually I, the wives will say, what would Eric say? <laughs> you know, which is funny. <laughs> uh, so there's some sort of accountability there. But it's also like being a spotter. You've all got under that rack. It's heavy to lift. But you don't want to be embarrassed because you can't lift it in front of your spouse. But what I've learned is if you got a spotter there and your spouse to help you, 
we can get this thing lifted. But when you try to be Superman and do it all on your own, that's where you make a lot of mistakes with money. When you cut out the spouse and you don't ask a pro for help. Yeah, I, I think that's extremely sound advice and a great analogy. Um, you know, because I, I think at the end of the day, you as a coach, you want to have all the answers. But unfortunately, you know that you won't have all the answers. So you will, you're willing to go to ask questions of somebody else on the things that you won't. But, at the, but most of the time, when it comes to finances, we're too proud to ask those questions. Bingo. So, hey, the, the pride comes before the fall, man. Like, no doubt. You got to humble yourself. You have to ask for help. Well, it's just like an athlete on the field. You ask an athlete, what's your assignment on this play? If they're too proud to ask for help, then they go out there and have a critical error or bust. Now it costs the whole team, a t- you know, six points. Yep. But, but they said they had it all under control, but they were lying. They were just too embarrassed to admit they had no clue what they were doing. So I'd rather, you know, I'm, I'm 41 years old. I'm still learning every day. There's, the markets are moving. Like you said, information is moving rapidly. There's so many voices and noises out there. So trying to find some sort of truth and wisdom is a competitive advantage in any business sector, whether it's coaching or financial planning. People just want to know there's somebody that's actually looking out for them and they want what's best for them. So that's where I kind of try to fit in. Yeah. So let's let's start diving in a little bit to to some of these questions. Uh, and I have posted it on on uh, my Instagram, just kind of seeing you know who specifically had some questions regarding uh, you know just various financial things, um, you know. And and I'm sure with each with each one of these we could go deep and forever, but you know we'll we'll just kind of keep it relatively surface level type. Um, you know, obviously the big deal right now is is uh, cryptocurrency and NFTs. And um, I'm sure there are people that, that hear those words and go, what the hell are you talking about? Like, you know, is there, is there validity to looking into investing in those things? And if so, like, where do you go that you feel safe and secure to, to dive into those deals? Because I feel like there's a whole lot of places to step into the big ocean of this, but you just don't know where the sharks are, but you know right. that they're out there. Absolutely. So as a disclaimer, cryptocurrency is not currently regulated as a security on the in America. So I can't sell or buy cryptocurrencies for investors. So this is not a buy or sell like opinion. This is just my personal opinion aside from business. So that's, there's my compliance disclaimer. Um, I cannot, my, I do have clients that have cryptocurrency and uh, they have had it for years. Some have had it longer than others. And the ones that have had it the longest have maximized their return on investment because they got in on it a lot sooner. I mean, I have one client used to be a police officer in Waco. Now she is completely retired because of her investment in Bitcoin five years ago, <clears throat> which was a huge gamble on her part, but it hit, and uh, I've asked. I've asked them as I so I've had to learn about this sector 
because it's growing rapidly over the past five years. Um, I believe it's here to stay. Um, it's in the Hollywood entertainment industry. People are now getting paid Bitcoin like OBJ, uh, other draft picks. They've negotiated this into their contracts versus getting dollars. They want Bitcoin, this digital asset, because it has a true market. Um, it's not currently taxed or regulated real well in the US or globally, but I promise you anything that moves, the regulators are going to find a way to tax you on it. Um, so what I, the best way I can explain it to curious investors is remember like <clears throat> when we were younger and the internet first came out yeah. and you used to get the AOL CD in the mail. Yep. And you had that. <laughs> you knew the whole sound of your internet setting up, whether it was Prodigy, CompuServe, or AOL. I'm taking you way back right now. No, I, I remember. I remember going to Kmart and getting all this stuff. And, you know, if, if the wrong person called the phone at the wrong time, you were disconnected and yep. all that good stuff. Oh, yeah. So that So when the internet first came out, people were real leery of it because, A, if you don't understand something, you don't have a lot of confidence in it, you're not going to go there. It's the same thing with running seven-step drop if you have no offensive line. You know, the more you know about something, the more confident you'll be with it, the more quicker you'll be to go that route or call that play. So, but had you invested in uh, Google or Yahoo when it first came out, Google is a giant search engine. So that's what the, the analogy I've used is, if I, if, I, if I was just get, to get started in cryptocurrency, the best place probably to get started is Bitcoin because it's kind of the analogy is it's kind of like the internet. It's the foundation for all the coins. It's, it's the market maker is what I call it. So, and Bitcoin is what people use. That it's already, I, you can see it on your PayPal account. You can see it, even banks are jumping on board with it, but it's now a global currency that is recognized and people are taking it as payment. Um, so Bitcoin, the problem with Bitcoin is it's, you know, $35,000 a coin. Whereas five years ago, it was $1,000 a coin. So it has rapidly expanded as more people have gotten into it. So back in 2008, when the market crashed, right before President Obama won the first time, what a lot of people traditionally have got into to hedge against inflation had been uh, uh, special metals like gold and silver. Well, now what I've seen in the past two to four years is people are not running to precious metals anymore. They're running to cryptocurrency as an alternative investment to the big three, which are cash, I mean, which is stocks, bonds, and real estate. I've been telling my clients for years, stocks is offense, bonds is defense, and real estate is special teams. Just like in football, you need all three to win the game. Because at some point, some are going to go up, some are going to go down. Back in 08, when the market crashed, Stocks and real estate went straight down with the subprime lending. Remember, Lehman Brothers went under, Barrick Stearns went under, AIG almost went under, uh, GM, Chevy, the car industry almost went under. So stocks and real estate were all down, but bonds, they were down a little bit because they're playing defense. So, for instance, my dad in that situation, he was like, what the heck is going on? It's like September. It's football season. 
and he's freaking out because his IRA went from, you know, X to half of X in one month. And he was not happy. And I said, dad, remember I told you that stocks, bonds, and real estate, I said, your, your offense and your special teams are getting crushed right now. So the wise thing to do is to sell your bonds and buy stocks and real estate. And my dad said, you're crazy. He didn't say that. He said something worse than that. And I said, I'm not crazy. I said, you're crazy if you don't do this because you buy things when they're on sale. You don't wait for them to recover back to full price. He goes, fine, do what you got to do. And he hung up the phone on me and he went to practice. And I literally sold all of his bonds, moved them into stocks and real estate, and he recovered in 18 months. Whereas had he just held, he would have recovered in two years. So that, that accelerated his recovery. But going back to that, I got to find a new term for a cryptocurrency. So, you know, stocks is offense, bonds is defense, real estate special teams. I would say cryptocurrency is almost like your, your gimmick plays, your trick plays. You know, they're not, I don't think it's like, you know, wise to always call a trick play, but you need to, you might want to have some in your bag. You want to have that, uh, that tight end, uh, flea flicker screen that the, uh, yeah. Rams won. That was beautiful. <laughs> well, remember the, the Eagles, the Philadelphia special when they yeah. won the Super Bowl. So it's not, a, that's what I'm saying. I'm, I don't have uh, a large allocation. I have most, you know, clients have maybe 10% cryptocurrency and or single stocks, which is very high, highly volatile as well. But I do think it's an asset class that's here to stay. I think it's going to get regulated more. And I believe advisors will be able to offer it in the future. It just currently is not in that, in that space. Yeah. And I do uh, think you know, Bitcoin is probably, if I had to just pick one to start with, because now you can buy fractions of it. You don't have to buy a whole coin. So yeah. that's, that would be kind of the, 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 the foundation coin to jump into first, if you wanted to research it more and learn more. Again, this is not a buy or sell. This is just my personal thoughts. Right. When it comes to, you know, moving money and, and determining, you know, are you going to play offense, defense, or special teams like you alluded to uh, with stocks, bonds, and real estates, let's kind of go on that mistake side, where do you see more mistakes tend to happen when it comes to dealing with your clients uh, compared to, let's say, their their smarter moves? Like if, if they just if they just call you like your dad does and say, well, fine, you go do it. Obviously, that's probably a more smarter. It's a smarter move because uh, you're you have the time invested in it. But, it, you know, and maybe this is just those initial conversations before they come to you and you go, yeah, you, you messed up here, here, and here. Um, but now we can correct those things. Yeah. Uh, I think number one is uh, coach. Most coaches, the mistake they make is they don't pay themselves first. They, uh, you know, when they do their budget, it's upside down. They pay all their expenses off the front. They might save something and then they may give at the very end. Whereas if you flip the script, if you give off the top, then you save, you know, invest for yourself, then you live off the rest, that's the wise way to handle money. Then you're not living check to check. You're giving yourself some space to breathe. And you're, you're a cheer, more cheerful person because you're giving to other people. That's the secret ingredient to the whole financial picture. The more that you give, 
it changes your dynamic of who you are and more will come back to you. It's reaping and sowing. It's universal law. It's biblical. And I've, every time I've seen it happen, it happens. On the flip side, the other thing is whenever you make a financial decision, you need to ask yourself, is it wise before you execute? So for instance, in the past month, the market has dropped about 10% from its high. And people, are, I get calls every day from people, especially the ones closer to retirement age in their 60s. What are we going to do? What's going to happen? What, I'm like, what do you mean what are we going to do? Life expectancy is still 75, 80. You still got 15, 20 years to live. Do you want to sell right now? Is that wise? Because when are you going to get back in? Well, maybe when things get better. Well, think about what you just said. If you sell now and you want to get back in when things are better, you missed the entire rally. You're getting back into the high. So when you make people think, go move from the right side of their brain, which is the emotional side, that's the fight or flight, that's survival of the fittest. That's where, that's where we first go is there. Yeah, my job is to move you to the left side of your brain, which is logical, not emotional. And it's very hard to do, especially with money, because so many, there's so much emphasis put on money. But it's a horrible leader. I don't like to be led by my money. I want it to serve me. I want to lead it well. I don't want to be led by it. Because when you're emotional, and you've seen this too, when you're emotional and you make mistakes, you get personal fouls, you get technical fouls, you hurt your team. So the great Bob Wager at Arlington Martin High School, I'll never forget. He's like, I am emotionally disconnected from my 403B. And I said, that is why you, you will be successful because you are not phased by this. You know that all you control is your monthly contribution. My job is to put you in the best investments, but we're, we can't control the stock market. We can't, but we can look back and see what it did. So every depression, recession, crash, decline, drop, you know, dip, whatever. In the history of the USA, how many of those have recovered? What percentage? Uh, like all of them, pretty much, 100%. right? 100%. Everyone has recovered. So if that's what we know, unless this time is different, what are we worried about? And people say, well, what if it is different? What if it goes to, to zero? Does it matter? Because now all of our money is worthless. Yeah. It's now the Wild West. We're back to farming, hunting, and prostitution. So please stay off my corner. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. So, and then the, I guess the other one's all, you know, not paying themselves first, acting on emotions versus wisdom. And then the last one is keeping up with the Joneses. The worst part about getting a job, getting a job in the NFL is a blessing, whether you're a coach or a player. The worst part about it is now you're in the NFL, which means not for long, but you got to make, you got to look like you're in the NFL. You got to drive an NFL car date an NFL person, live in an NFL house, you know, all your expenses go up. And what did, what did Biggie say? Mo money, mo what? More problems. No problems. It's true. And guess who's waiting for it? The IRS, the tax man. Yeah. They're life always going to get theirs. You get in that 35% bracket, life changes, especially if you're living in California or Hawaii and you see half of your check disappear. I mean, it'll humble you real quick. Yeah. It'll frustrate you too. So my job is I'm it's me versus the IRS and me against your emotions. Because the last time I checked, 
The Joneses own the Dallas Cowboys. I ain't trying to keep up with them. And it's not smart to keep up with the Joneses because they, they got a lot more money and assets than I do. Yeah, I'm with you 100%. There's my insight there. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's extremely, extremely important um, information. And, 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 you know, it's just, it's sensible and it's direct, but sometimes those are the hardest things to process because you, you want to fight simplicity because you feel like it shouldn't be that easy, but in reality, it really is. It just, I, I think that's the biggest deal is, is that removal of emotion on something like money, like an inanimate object that flips and becomes extremely tangible to the point of, like you said, leading, you know, we are led by money rather than we lead the money. Um, so that's, that's a big deal. You talked about the IRS and we've got tax season coming up and, you know, all the bombardment of uh, filing options and, um, you know, how do you go about uh, getting things done in a timely manner and, you know, all these I's and T's and to dot and cross, um, you know, I, I've done the, the online digital stuff for a while and I think it works for most people in a, simplified deal but as i've done it i feel like we're not getting potential you know, for me and my wife it's just the two of us and we rent right now and and i and i know you've seen it and, and you've lived it to own in turn as a coach is a difficult choice uh when it comes to owning a home yeah you know, because you might be moving because you might be moving and that's and that's the high school level you know it's not even just college where it's you know, at least with the high school, you can finish out your school year at the college level. When, when they say you're done, you're done. Yeah. Check ends in January. Yeah. So how do you go about with your clients, you know, discussing that, that part of the, the process in terms of, you know, okay, here's, here's what you should be keeping up with, you know, cause everybody says, I'll oh, save all your receipts. Well, like, you know, I guess the question would be, well, why? Because not everything gets to be claimed depending on, you know, this box, that box, whatever. Mm -hmm. So wh where, where, or how could you simply direct people to say, this is what you should kind of look at. This is where you should kind of focus. And then maybe, you know, you venture off over here kind of deal. Yeah, I, you, you kind of touched on it. I think the big thing with taxes is you don't want to mess them up because now you got a bigger problem on your hand. The KBG, I mean, the IRS might be coming <laughs> for you. So they, you know, you have to, I would say, you know, as complexity, as, you know, if you just have a W-4 as a public school teacher like you and your wife, and there's no like rental income or royalties or investments paying you dividends, if it's not real complex, yeah, save your money, file online, and just get it done before April 15th, Who, whichever spouse enjoys it, whichever one, because usually there's a fun one and there's a nerd. So whoever the nerd is needs to be the accountant and do the online filing, because the fun one, they're off, you know, playing somewhere. So usually in a, in a marriage situation, there's a nerd and there's a, a free spirit. So 
you know, I'm the nerd in my family and I do the taxes. My wife has no clue what they are. She doesn't care about them. She's going to make sure nobody's going to jail. So over time, you know, as our uh, wealth has gone up and our incomes have gone up, even with coaches, when they go from high school to college to pro or, you know, as income goes up, your risk of getting audited goes up as well. Basically, you make under $100,000 joint income, I don't think they're going to mess with you. So you just need to make sure you file on time and, if, you know, withhold. The goal is to break even. I don't want to get a big refund. If I get a $6,000 refund, that tells me I gave the IRS $500 too much every month for the whole year, and I made nothing on it. Like my favorite year, I think I got two bucks back from the IRS. I was so happy. And my neighbor's like, you only got two bucks back. What are you excited for? I was like, we broke even. Like, I'm not going to, I want to have my money and my family maximizing its effort. I don't want it sitting in D.C. So with complexity, as it goes up, a CPA is uh, an ally and worth their money because they got to sign off on your tax return. So if you get audited, guess who gets pinned on that? The CPA. Yeah. They're not messing with me. I don't have time to deal with it. That's why I hired the CPA. Um, in addition to that, if, you, if you're single or you don't enjoy doing taxes, I would encourage you to go to like an H&R Block or you know, hire a CPA at least for one time because they will do it all for you. Now you've got a template. You can see what they did. So the next year, if you want to do it on your own, shoot, go for it. You already you saw what they did. If your life didn't change, it's going to be the same thing, but now you can save an hourly rate if you want to. Or you continue to use them and build that relationship as you move up. You have somebody on your team that you trust. So I, you know, I still do my own taxes every year. I, I get this much closer to handing it off. I have three CPAs that I've referred to clients in DFW, all again on complexity. You know, first year code talk, I have this one CPA, a little more complex, another CPA. And then if I have one that has a foundation and all these real estate deals and private equity deals, that's my top CPA, which is obviously the most expensive. It's like the more you know, the more you're going to get paid. So you decide that with whatever's best for your family. But yeah, you don't want to make a mistake with the IRS. You don't want them chasing you because they never lose. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. So in terms of winning and losing, and let's just kind of flip it over to the personal side, both for you and for your clients. Obviously, the, the easiest thing to say when it comes to winning is, their, their investment portfolio looks better. They get to retire sooner. Yeah, big win. Easy to say. But that's the long play. How do you gauge the, the yearly success for your clients that builds towards that retirement? You know, aside from just the, the, the monthly contribution, you know, and that kind of whatever construct you guys have created. How do you gauge that your clients are being successful versus not? Yeah, so uh, financial planning is real simple. You want debt to go down. Debt is a four-letter word. It equals risk. So as your debt goes down, your risk goes down, and your net worth goes up. So I want a successful year for me is my client's debt went down and their assets went up, which gives them more net worth for their family. 
And all that is, it's not a transactional thing either. It's more about the freedom to control their time. My biggest complaint with money is when I hear people say time is money. And I'm here to tell you it's not. Time is so much more precious and more valuable than money. You can always go out and make more money. But if you've ever been sick, I mean, I watched my dad. My dad was on a ventilator for 105 days with COVID. And when I talked to him in the hospital, he survived. He played golf last week, 18 holes. My dad survived COVID. He said, he goes, all I wanted to do is get out of the hospital and spend some time with my family and friends. You know, my daughter was nine. She was diagnosed with bone cancer. You know, it's, it was scary. And all I was asking, I wasn't asking to make more money. All I wanted was more time with her. So people get caught up with money when we should be focused on our time. And the greatest part about retirement, again, is that it frees up your time. You don't have to set that alarm clock. You can go do with whatever time you have left on this earth to serve others, help them win, and leave a legacy. That's kind of big picture for me. Like, I love when my coaches re retire because I get invited to the party. It's a big celebration. And then I find out what do they want to do next? Because there's only so much golf you can play. There's only so many vacations you can go on. I mean, you want to spoil grandkids, but what kind of legacy are you leaving behind? So it's, uh, it's all important, but uh, it's worth it. Yeah. Um, when it comes to you and, and, you know, the importance is you, you're running your business. You have to meet your bottom line and, and, and you know, be able to continue to provide for your family. I think one of the deals when it comes to pride is why am I going to go to somebody and pay them to do it? I can just do it myself. Obviously that's proven false, which is potentially why you're in this situation. So then they come to you and they go, okay, well, well, how do I justify paying you? How, how are you going to make money off of me? And I'm trying to make money too. Like, can we have it both ways? And obviously the answer is yes. Otherwise, you wouldn't be in your situation. Um, but, you know, that, that's, I'm sure, a realistic fear or um, I don't know if fear is the right word in that instance, but just a, a caution uh, for your potential clients, at least maybe early on, you know, why would they go with you and, you know, type of deal? Yeah, so this, this, there's, there's two parts to this conversation. The, the only reason why someone would, would not hire a pro in any capacity is that they don't think they're worth it, Right. So in my profession, there's only three ways you get paid. Number one, you get paid a commission. Kind of like when you sell a house, you're going to pay three to 6% to the broker. It's the same with investments. Back in the day, that was the only way to get paid was a commission by selling a stock, a bond, a mutual fund. Well, over the last 20 years, since I've been aware of the business, it's the market has moved away from the commission model and it's gone to more of a fee-based model. So now most advisors will charge pretty much the norm is 1% for assets under management. So if you hand me $100,000 and I get paid 1% on that, my 1% is charged quarterly. So I charge 0.25 the first quarter, 0.25 the second quarter, 0.25 the third quarter, 0.25 the fourth quarter. So for the year, I got paid 
So I want your account value to go up. That's more the fiduciary standard, which is I'm on your side of the table. I'm not selling you an investment. I'm on your side. I take no fee off the front. I have no fee on the back. I just want your account to go up. So last year, say you made 20% in 2021, you probably made 21%, your advisor got paid one, which is no big deal in an up year. But paying 1% when your money is down 20%, that hurts. So you have to justify yourself during a bear market or a down market. And then the third way I would get paid if they don't want to do a commission or a fee-based structure is just an hourly rate. Just like you would charge anybody, like you charge somebody to come into your house and fix your refrigerator, there's going to be a service call and, you know, parts of labor. For me, it's an hourly rate with a two-hour minimum. Um, so every, every advisor has their own deal, their own price structure, but that's how we're paid. But again, what are you paying for? For me, you're paying for access. At any time, you can call me, text me, ask me questions about money. Is this wise? Should I invest in this? Should I do this? How should I pay for my kid's college? You know, how should I pay? Should I get this type of life insurance? Should I get a 15, 20, or 30-year mortgage? Should I get an arm? These are all the questions I get all day long. And I, I go back to, well, is it wise? And here's my, here's what I think you should do. At the end of the day, you make your decisions and you lay in that bed. I don't lay in that bed. But I'll tell you what's wise from what I've seen my own self plus my clients. 15 years of experience still matters. Just like you hire the old DC to come in and uh, stop the wing tee because all the young coaches have never seen the wing tee. Same thing. So being around, oh, I'm loved that I got into the business in 07 because when 08 hit, it worked out perfectly for me. None of my clients were mad at me because I just started. So I picked up a ton of clients because most advisors in a down market, they run from their clients. I don't do that. I love a down market because I get important again. When everybody's making money, nobody calls me. But like this past month, I've gotten a ton of calls. Why? Well, the market's down 10%. People are freaking out. They're like, the Fed's gonna raise interest rates four times this year. I'm like, so? They raised them six times in 94. They went from 3% to 5.5%. Y'all forgot those mortgages. Back when mortgages were in the fives. Well, I saw mortgages in the late 70s that were 19, 20%. I've seen those in the books. So having some experience there and walking people off the cliff, that's what I'm for. Because I've had I've heard so many people say, man, I'm so mad at myself. I'm kicking myself. Because back in 08, when my 401k turned into a 201k, I cashed out. And that was stupid. Because had I stayed in, I would have tripled my money. And I say, why did your advisor let you do that? Oh, I didn't have an advisor. I fired him or he was nowhere to be found. I said, well, of all my clients, I had two cash out no way. And I screamed at him. I said, this is not smart. This is not wise. You're letting emotions get to the best of you. You're not paying attention to history. There's a 100% historical rate probability that this will recover. And I am not advising this. And they're like, well, this time is different. I'm out. And both of those clients to this day have apologized me, apologized me at least a dozen times. Martel, you were right. I panicked. I got emotional. I made a mistake. I said, yeah, I've hurt your family. So just like in coaching, you're not telling people to do things. I'm not telling you to run hard, jump fast, lift all those weights for something. 
It ain't about me. I'm doing it to give you a chance to win on game day. That's why you do offseason. So how, what am I, how, where is my value built? My value is built in uh, relationships, the ability to access, and truth. Like, I never sell rate of returns. I don't say, you're going to make 12%. You're going to make 15 I've lost clients because they've had some advisor come in and say, oh, Martell only made you X. I could have made you 3% more. And I'll lose a client because of that. But I don't want a transactional relationship. I want one where it's built on trust and respect, and we're both moving in the right direction, and we're both on the same mission. And here's the thing about missions. Money follows missions. So we're on the same mission, which is my goal is to help every coach I come in contact with retire sooner rather than later. I want them to, their families to thrive, and I don't want money being a reason that they have stress or divorce in their life. I hate that. And when my clients go through a divorce, I truly feel like I failed that family. I hate it. Like, it breaks my heart. Like, right now, I got three clients going through a divorce, and it eats me up. I'm like, what could I have done better? Like, it's like, that's how I evaluate success. But, yeah, do I think I'm worth it? I think I am. Um, I think there's a lot of advisors out there that are worth it. Um, the best ones, in my opinion, empathize with their clients, put themselves in their shoes. And I also empathize with the kids because I've been the coach's kid. Like, when a coach calls me and says, hey, should I take this job in another state? I'm going to get paid a little bit more, kind of a lateral move. I'm like, well, how old are your kids? Oh, they're 16 and 14? No, you need to stay where you're at because that kid's got to build their reputation again. I don't want them to move away from their boyfriend or girlfriend. Like, it's hard to be a coach's kid, even though it's awesome at times. And what I've learned is most wives, after six moves, they're done. They don't want to move anymore. They're tired of it. So I got to give pep talks to wives all the time. <laughs> you, you say that now I'm starting, okay, how many times will we counting. Well, so here, here's... Here's you the deal. Her neck and tell her she's pretty. <laughs> um, no, so I met my wife in God, um, 2013, I think. I moved to I moved to Crandall, Texas. I got a job offer. Todd John took a chance on this poor schmo, and I will forever thank him because that one put me um gave you a shot. Gave me a shot. Um it was the first time I was a head coach. I had no business being a head coach. I got my teeth kicked in for boys soccer, but I learned so much. Uh, and then the next year, um, met my wife and, you know, just been a great, um, blessing to my life just to have her and the support that she she's given. Um, uh, but we, I moved around DFW. She stayed at her spot. So I don't know if that particularly counts. Um, but then she's also said, okay, to, you know, these last four years where we've moved uh, across the state uh, down yeah, to South Texas. Those, those count. The ones where you move houses. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, there's only, flex, that, that don't count. No. There's, so this, this is only two of those right now. So I, four left. Uh, I don't even know if we're going to get to four. We're trying <laughs> to stay. We want to stay put. Uh, you know, and and you know as well as I do, staying put is is sometimes a a big dream uh, and a huge blessing when it happens. So that that would be the the hugest deal is you know can we stay put and um, kind of establish roots in an area. Yeah. Yep. Um, but 
Well, Eric, man, I, I sincerely appreciate the time. And, and, and I know that there's probably a million other questions, um, but, but I, I do want to be mindful of your time. And uh, I, I don't want to just have you give away all of your trade secrets either. Um, but I, I'll ask you, and I didn't put this on the, on the questions that I had pre-sent you, but I read it off oh, your yes. bio. Uh, no, um, you know, I, I, I'm not familiar with um, your daughter's story, Annabelle Grace. Um, and I don't know if, if you, if you want to take some time and just kind of share her story. Um, every time I see that pinned tweet, I, it doesn't matter what is going on in the day to see her ring that bell. It's, it's awesome. Um, you know, and, and if you don't want to, I truly understand, but, uh, you know, I, I would love to hear the story if you don't mind sharing. Yeah. Uh, be honored to, um, since day one. So my daughter, she's my oldest, my firstborn. I got a girl and two boys. So when she was nine, December of 2019, um, she had just finished playing her first season of select softball and she kept saying her left arm was hurting and I didn't go to every practice or every game. So I thought maybe she got hit by a ball. Uh, maybe she dove and hurt it. I just thought it was a strain, you know, so I was, you know, put some ice on it, Advil, we're moving on. Well, about a month, you know, a month passed, we go to Disney world, we come home and, uh, she went through like physical therapy, but it didn't get better. And uh, she kept saying it hurt, it hurt. Every night she said it hurt. But one day we live in a cul-de-sac and we have a brick mailbox that's about uh, three feet tall. So she's being a nine-year-old. She literally tries to push herself to sit on top of the mailbox. So she puts her hands on the mailbox, she presses up and when she does, she feels a pop, a sharp pain in her left arm right behind her bicep. And uh, she's screaming in pain on the ground. And we take her in. She said, I broke it. I broke it. I broke my arm. I'm like, what? Like, how do you break your arm on a mailbox? What in the world? So we take her to our orthopedic, pediatric orthopedic. And we're all laughing because my oldest son had already broken each ankle. And our youngest son had broke his tibia because he got kicked by a Shetley pony on my wife's dad's farm. So we're, we're all laughing like, oh, here's the third Bartell kid, broken bone, here we go. We're all laughing. We get the x-rays done. And the doctor came back in the room and his face was white as snow. There was no laughter. And instantly the whole dynamic of the room shifted. And he said, Mr. and Mrs. Bartell, you need to go directly to Cook's Children's Hospital in Fort Worth. You need to get an MRI. There's something on her arm. And... I just, you instantly go, how, uh, how does this happen to us? Like, why us? And we go to Cook's, we, she does the MRI, and uh, they're like, yeah, it's a tumor on her arm. The tumor was eating into her bone. And you need to get uh, a, a needle biopsy done to confirm if it's malignant or a benign tumor. And this is one week before Christmas. And uh, I can honestly say I've never felt like that numb before. And as a dad, like my number one job as a dad is to protect and provide for my family. That was my job. 
And at that moment, I felt like I couldn't do that because I can't take that away from her. And I was like, God, please just let this be benign. Like, please let this just be a foul ball. Like, no big deal. We can, you know, get it cut out. We're fine. Uh, we did the needle biopsy on the following Monday. And they said they would let us know by the end of the week <clears throat> the results. Uh, they, they called us on Wednesday and said, yes, it is cancer. It is called osteosarcoma. And my heart, I felt like I got shot in the chest with a bazooka. Because this kid had never missed a day of school. Like my daughter had perfect attendance. She never was sick, playing sports. Like this came out of nowhere. And uh, I mean, I was, you talk about crushed. I mean, didn't sleep, didn't eat for weeks. Um, we instantly started chemotherapy. She had to do 18 rounds of chemotherapy. Um, they said it would take 10, 10 to 12 months. So her, her treatment plan was six rounds of chemo. That was to shrink and try to kill the tumor to make it as small as possible. And then they would cut the tumor out of her arm. And in order to get the, the sense the tumor was on her bone, it's called her humerus bone. That's the bone that connects from your shoulder to your elbow. They said, we're going to try to shrink it before it gets into her shoulder. And then all we, have to, we would do what's called a limb salvage surgery. Um, but hopefully it's only in her bone. It's not in her lungs. If it's only in her arm, there's a 70% 70, 70 survival rate. If it's in her lungs, it goes down to 20%. So they had to do a whole body scan. And thankfully, it was only in her arm. There was no, there was no cancer showing in her chest. So that was like the first time I ever went Facebook, you know, posted a video on Facebook or Twitter. I'm, I'm like in tears, but I'm, I told her, I said, do you want me to share your story? Because if you do, I will. And we, we figured out that her hashtag was AG tough. Her Bible verse was Galatians 6, 9. And I said, I will always, to honor you and your story, I'll always let you check what I post before I post it. I said, but I want to get as many people out there loving on you, encouraging you, and praying for you as possible because you need it. I need it. Mommy needs it. We all need as many people on board here. And she said, yeah, Dad, just, I'll do whatever we need to do. And she did six rounds of chemo. All her hair fell out. I shaved my head. My dad shaved his head. Um, I went to AFCA and passed out bracelets. Tons of coaches got her bracelets, got her T-shirts. I mean, it was awesome just seeing all these coaches rally around her. I went from being Coach Gary Bartell's son to I went to being AG's dad. Like, I don't know if I have a name in the Met out there anymore, like, but I'm glad to be Gary Bartell's son and AG's dad. So she goes through six rounds of chemo. She does limb solvent surgery. They took out her bone, put in a donor bone, uh, reattached her bicep, tricep, rotator cuff. And the surgery was supposed to take like four to six hours. It took like three. Uh, she needed no blood during the surgery. There was no infection. It was a perfect surgery. She got to save her arm. And uh, then she had to do 12 more rounds of chemo after the surgery to kill all the micro malignancies in her bloodstream. Um, so she finished that. That's the, that's the uh, video. Uh, well, actually, the one on my Twitter account was after her immunotherapy. So my wife found this immunotherapy that's approved in Europe and Israel but it's not approved in the USA. But over in Europe, it's had great results to help minimize relapse because with this type of cancer, it comes back in one and two kids. 
If it comes back, there is no treatment plan. So we finished, Annabelle Grace finished her 18 rounds of chemo in less than eight months. The doctors at Medical City Dallas said it would take 10 to 12 months, and they were shocked. They'd never seen anybody do it that fast. I mean, this kid is an absolute warrior. So when I say AG tough, like, she's the toughest person I know. Like, my, my hero is a, now an 11-year-old girl, which is crazy. Uh, so she finished chemo. She was in remission in August of uh, 2021. She finished up 36 uh, immunotherapy treatments. That's how cancer goes now. You do chemotherapy, and now they try to build up your immune system with immunotherapy to, to minimize relapse. So we got approved of it. That's the only thing good about COVID. The FDA stripped down all the red tape and just started approving things. So they were trying to approve a vaccine. Well, they approved her thing too. And she, was, she got this immunotherapy for free. It was supposed to cost us hundred grand. They gave it to us for free, which was a huge blessing. And she finished it. And she had her, she, every three months she gets scans. And last week she got her 18 month scans and they were all clear. So she is currently 18 months in remission. Um, she has scans next April. And then the two year mark is huge. That'll be July. At the two year mark, if she's still in remission, the risk of relapse drops. And so we're, we're still kind of in that danger zone. But we'll, that's a long story to tell you what it's taught me. It's, I have completely been humbled by this whole process. What I used to think were problems are basically, they're just inconveniences. The stock market, uh, losing a client, you know, watching my favorite team win it, losing sports, you know, uh, hurting my meniscus, you know, all these things are in-law problems or family problems or neighbor problems or little league baseball problems or what, everything that we complain about 95% of it is just inconveniences. Real problems is when you walk in a cancer floor at a children's hospital. When you see these kids fighting for their lives, when you see these parents that are exhausted. And add on top of that, COVID. So COVID made it very hard because only one adult was allowed in the hospital with the kid. So every time AG went in for treatments, me or my wife went in with her. The other one stayed home with the boys. We could, there was no swapping. There was no Uber Eats. There was no Grubhub. There was no grandparents, family, or friends going to see you. You had to stay in your hospital room and eat hospital food all week. It was like a jail cell. So just watching her with the mental, physical, and emotional toughness that she displayed to me, I mean, remarkable. And we shared that story via my Twitter and my Facebook. I see, I mean, I really go out in Colleyville or Grapevine up here in DFW, and people will see me and say, hey, how's AG doing? Because 2021 was hard on all of us. But to see her story and see her overcome it and just see the Lord bless her with more life, it's completely changed my way of how I view money. I spent more money in the last year on vacations than I've ever spent in my life. Because every three months we go celebrate. Because I don't know how long my daughter will be with me. I mean, at five years she's a survivor, but there's no guarantees. So I don't want to. I don't want to prioritize money over her, right? So 
Uh, that's Annabelle Grace. She's now 11. She plays one-armed tennis now. Uh, she broke uh, a mile in 10 minutes for the first time. She ran a 9.57. Uh, she's an absolute beast, and she's uh, starring in a couple of – she starred in Cinderella and Frozen. She likes theater also. And she's her brother's biggest fans. So she's, uh, she's a remarkable young lady, and she's a living legend at that hospital. Like whenever new kids come on the floor, whether it's leukemia, bone cancer, you know, whatever cancer it is, Annabelle Grace makes it a point to go up to them and give them a hug and tell the kids it's going to be okay. So, I mean, I get choked up talking about it, but uh, anybody that's a dad or a mom, my encouragement to them would be love your kids even when they're an absolute mess. The quote that we have hanging up on our, in our house says, you are loved and your life matters. Those are the two greatest truths that we can pour into our kids because the world's trying to tell them differently. Whereas as her daddy and as her mom, we want our kids to know that, hey, you are loved and your life matters. And that's what we try to build them up all the time with. And it really, I mean, it changes the way you look at money. It changes the way you look at your wife, your kids. Um, so if you want to feel loved, if you get cancer, your kid gets cancer, you'll see how loved you are. This, you know, our generation gets a very selfish, you know, people are selfish. People only take care of them. Man, we've had more people show us love and, and kindness in the past two years. Um, we can never repay it. And uh, I'm just thankful that she's still here. And I, you know, would love, love, love to see her graduate and walk her down the aisle one day. That's pretty much all I want. So every year when she gets clear scans, that's when I say, oh, early Christmas gift for dad. I got what I wanted. I just want my kids here. So thank you for letting me share her story. Uh, her hashtag is AGTuff. My pinned tweet on my Twitter account, which is at Eric Bartel, E-R-I-C-B-A-R-T-E-L. You can go on there and you can watch her ring that bell. That'll give you an instant dose of toughness and a clarity on what matters most in life. Absolutely. Well, Eric, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, thank you for taking the time. I, I sincerely appreciate it and uh, wish you guys all the best, you and your family. And, um, you know, thank AG for, uh, for letting her story be told on the podcast. Yeah, I need to get your address. I'll send you one of her bracelets. Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's, a great, uh, it's a great conversation starter. And anytime you want to pout or kind of feel bad, when you look down and see your wrist. So like my dad, like when he was in the hospital with uh, COVID for 105 days, he had a trach in his throat and he couldn't talk. And he said, all they let me keep on was my AG Tough bracelet. And he said, I would look down at my bracelet and remember what she went through. And it was an encouragement to me that the best is yet to come. Just keep going. So to hear my dad, who's now 67, say that about my daughter, I mean, that's the power of encouragement. And that's the power of love. Love people enough to tell them the truth. And let's all win together. <laughs>